This is episode 18 with Josh Lee, the Chief Business Officer at Epiphany. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Josh Lee is the Chief Business Officer at Epiphany, a fintech company and digital asset marketplace using technology such as blockchain. Prior to this, Josh was a business executive at Google for 12 years. During his tenure, he spent time at Google X as its Chief Innovation Officer in Asia, and he also co-founded the Asian Google Network, one of the largest employee resource groups at Google with presence in 20 countries around the world. Josh was also the founder and CEO of a startup, Leisure Planner, and he started his career as a consultant at Accenture. Josh holds an MBA from UCLA Anderson, as well as a BA in East Asian Studies from Harvard. I first met Josh in 2016 when we both worked at Google New York, and he always struck me as a high-energy, ambitious, and thoughtful person who was also very proud of his Asian identity. When he left Google to join a startup, that only made me respect Josh even more. In this episode, you'll learn about the three questions to ask yourself every six months to decide if you need a career change, how an MBA can lead you to take a more entrepreneurial path, and when it makes sense to switch from a technical to a non-technical education. Hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get started. Hey, Josh, how you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Justin, and it's great to catch up with you. Yeah, good to see you. Um, when we last connected, it was probably in 2018, 2019, right before you left Google and we were both in New York. Um, obviously, the world has changed a lot since then, even in the last few months. Where are you at right now? Where are you taking this call uh, from at the moment? Um, yeah, I'm here in the Upper East Side in Manhattan, yeah. in New York City. And have you been, have you been uh, holding up the last few months, given what's happening in the world? Pretty good, uh, you know, sheltering from home. Uh, thank goodness there's, uh, you know, online grocery shopping for the first few months. But but now, you know, we're able to go to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods and, and stuff yeah. like that and buy things. So, yeah, so we're all good here in New York. Good, good. Um, would be great to, to start with, where are you from? Um, you've had a, such a global experience, uh, having worked in, obviously, the States and in Asia. But... I would love to start with just your background. Where, where were you born and what was your upbringing like? Yeah. So I was born in Taiwan and I came to New York City, uh, you know, immigrated when I was eight years old with my family. Yeah. Wow. And um, you speak fluent Mandarin. Yeah. And... So. Yep. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, I think my parents, they, they saw the value of keeping our Chinese heritage. So they made us speak Chinese uh, at home. Uh, sent us to Chinese school on, yeah. on on the weekends, as well as you know, attend my dad's church, which is um, bilingual service. So I was like literally hearing Chinese almost every day. Wow, I'm I'm very jealous, uh, given that uh, my parents are first from Singapore, but I was born in in Canada. And as much as my parents did their best effort to send me to Chinese school on the weekends um, and pick it up, it just never stuck. So uh, it's great that that you've stuck with, um, you know, uh, learning the language. How have you kind of passed that on to your kids, if at all? Well, I, so I think uh, at some point, you know, my wife who's actually also from Singapore, uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, uh, you know, we decided that it might be good to move back to Asia where the kids can really learn more Chinese. So, so you know, with, 
during my 12 years at Google, we spent half of that in Asia and sent our kids to school uh, in Singapore and Taiwan, where they were able to you know, study Chinese, have Chinese tutors, and, and so on. Got it. So how, how uh, fluent are they in Mandarin right now? And I know that you mentioned they're, they're back in Taiwan right now. Yeah, uh, they're back in Taiwan for the summer to, to yeah. study some more. Um, you know, I would say that our, our daughter, her Mandarin is better uh, because she had longer time taking it, uh, you know, at, at the higher levels uh, in school there. Um, you know, she's going to, you know, aspirationally uh, going to study for you know, the AP Chinese exam and, and so on. Our son had less, but, uh, you know, his current school in New York, uh, it's a private school. They do have uh, Chinese language as well. So, so basically, yeah, we're trying to, it's kind of uh, hard, but, but we're trying to, you know, uh, have our kids, you know, um, know, study Chinese. Yeah, that's great. And would you say your um, upbringing in New York was um, typical of an Asian American at the time, as in, like you mentioned, going to Chinese school? Um, how much focus was there on academics? What was your parents' influence in terms of, you know, what you studied as well? Yeah, great question. So, uh, you know, definitely very strong focus on education in general. Uh, def definitely focus on um, Chinese uh, language, but even Chinese cultural values, right? So, you know, uh, when I was young, my, my parents would tell us, like, you know, we have books that talks about uh, like Confucius as a model or Mencius as a model, right? So, so I think it's uh, the like, you know, story of like Mencius' mom moving three times in order to find the suitable environment for her son to study in, right? So a lot of those mm -hmm. kind of, idioms slash uh, stories from uh, Chinese heroes or role models were of these people who were very pious and, uh, and also who were scholarly and, and, and so on. So yeah, definitely a lot of the Chinese values were, were the main ones that my, my parents tried to uh, you know, teach my brother and I. Yeah, so academia was really important. Um, and when you were younger, where did you find your interests um, kind of pulled you towards? Yeah, uh, definitely the sciences. So, uh, you know, I think, I think it's not the stereotype Asians, but, but definitely, you know, I, I gravitated toward the sciences and math. And so, you know, I did, uh, you know, back then it's called Westinghouse, Westinghouse Research at a lab in uh, Columbia University. It was on uh, fiber optics and lasers and, and, and so on. Uh, so I, you know, like was heavily involved in all the science and engineering math yeah. activities at high school. Um, and then I thought that I would probably go into the engineering uh, uh, world after you know, in college and, and afterwards. Mm. And how much of that interest was really just like self-driven uh, by your own curiosity versus guided from your, your family? You know, actually, I think, I think my parents uh, gave me pretty free reign there. I mean, as long as I had a, you know, a... Um, pretty good idea of what was what I wanted to do. And I explained to them, I think they pretty much let me choose. Although it's possible that if I told them I wanted to be an artist, maybe they would have, you know, kind of uh, reacted more <laughs> against it. But, but since I told them I wanted to be an electrical engineer when I was young, uh, I think they were fine with that. But um, right. now, I was also honestly driven by my, my love for Star Trek. Like, you know, mm. when I came to the United States, yeah. you know, like that was one of the uh, TV shows I watched and that, the whole world of, of Star Trek really fascinated me. So, um, so becoming like a, an, an engineering based yeah. kind of a role was very uh, important. But, and it, it's, it's a great, like seeing the arc of your career, especially after you, um, you graduated from your undergrad, it's, it's neat to see how technology has really been a key theme in your career. And we'll, we'll touch on that later. Um, but we'd love, love to figure out how did you 
figure out or decide what to study in university. So I see that you studied East Asian studies. Yeah. Um, so you're really interested in like technical uh, STEM type subjects in, in your younger years. What kind of drove the decision for you to study East Asian studies? Yeah, so it's actually interesting. So uh, at Harvard, we had this thing called sophomore standing, right? So if you take enough AP courses, you come in, you, have, you basically just start as a sophomore. And so I started out with sophomore standing, major in physics. Mm -hmm. And between my first and second year, I actually did particle physics research at Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, or SLAC. And there I was like in the lab, you know, working with researchers. And I learned a lot about um, particle physics and, and all these really great topics. But the actual work of a particle physicist, I just thought, oh, you know what? So like kind of in the lab, uh, literally like in the cavern, like in the basement. And I was like, okay, you know, this may be not as interactive as I thought. And, and it's also quite hard, like theoretically, like it's more advanced than I had anticipated. And at the same time, you know, I was heavily involved in the uh, you know, Harvard a Asian American Student Association, where a lot of my older uh, classmates that were like, you know, big brothers and sisters or mentors to me, a lot of them were all, you know, basically planning to um, kind of leverage their Asian American background and business background to kind of go into, let's say, you know, um, investment banking in, in Asia or, or consulting work. So I just thought, okay, you know, I could uh, switch. And the, the great thing about liberal arts education really is you can study anything and still get yeah. a job in, in those areas. So that's why I thought, okay, um, uh, let me consider you know, doing something different. And at the same time, I did this one class uh, called Cultural Revolution uh, with this professor called, uh, you know, his name is Roderick McFarquhar, who was like a British diplomat in, in Beijing at the time of the Cultural Revolution. And it was an amazing class. Like we actually had Red Guards as our section leaders and you hear their life stories. And there's so many twists and turns that could rival any political drama anywhere. And I was fascinated by Chinese history. So that's what I decided to switch over my major from physics to East Asian studies, which is a pretty dramatic shift. <laughs> it's amazing though, you, you did, I mean, at an early age, you kind of listened to yourself and you weren't afraid to make those changes, right? Well, I think it would have been maybe the safer choice just to stick your path and like grind it through, but um, you made the decision to follow your curiosity, which is amazing. Um, I guess on that point, like just um, having the opportunity to reflect on your heritage as an Asian American, did you have a chance to do that or did you do that much before you actually discovered uh, these in college or um, was that your first time really delving into the history of what it meant to be a, to be Asian, Chinese and, and living in America? Yeah, really good question. So I would say, you know, uh, my, my self-identity and awareness has probably shifted over the years. So in my, you know, upbringing, you know, if someone would ask me, how would you describe yourself? I would say I'm Chinese, right? So this is my yeah. my high school age and maybe starting like right by the time I'm like senior in high school uh, I went to this really good high school in New York City called Hunter College High School and we had like an Asian student association but it was more for you know cultural activities and so on but in college that's where again the Asian uh, Asian um, student uh, um, you know we, you know we I was also heavily involved in this thing called East Coast Asian Students Union which is really a, a, a union of all the colleges in the Northeast. And we also have a yearly conference. And at these conferences, we explore topics like model minority myth or you know, anti-Asian American violence. There was like this mm -hmm. uh, famous Yukon incident where these uh, you know, football players kind of spat on Asian students. So that was like a big deal back when I was in college to talk about that. Also, there's the Vincent Chin uh, you know, kind of a killing. 
And that's really spurred on the Asian American, kind of galvanized the movement really to protest that. And that led to this famous documentary called Who Killed Vincent Chin, right? So those are kind of the things where prior to college, I had like no idea about. I thought that, you know, I was pretty much Chinese and yeah. uh, I was safe pretty much. But then in college, I realized, well, you know what, actually I am an Asian American and there's differences uh, and, and so on. I have more in common that's, you know, possibly with, you know, somebody who is like a Korean American or Japanese American or, or um, Vietnamese American. So my identity really started to shape more as an Asian American uh, during college. Very, very fascinating. Um, and how did that, how did that kind of um, self-awareness actually shape how, what choices you made in your career and also um, some of the bigger decisions you made? Yeah. If, if there was like some, a clear epiphany or was this just a kind of broader perspective you had about yourself, which you didn't have before? So I think it definitely, so after college, uh, you know, I joined this thing called National Association of Asian American Professionals. And yeah. again, there are chapters all over the country. There's a yearly conference. Uh, I was, you know, one of the uh, board members of the Boston chapter of, you know, uh, National Association of Asian American Professionals. And then, so there I kind of realized that in order to succeed in the marketplace, um, you know, the glass ceiling is real, right? Or you call it the bamboo ceiling. And that uh, I need to seek out mentors. I need to seek out role models. I need to kind of learn more about that. And so I think that's kind of led me to participate in, in those activities. And then when I got to Google, I asked around if there was such a uh, employee resource group, uh, ERG, at, at Google for Asian Americans. And I, I heard from one of my friends that the answer is no. She put me in touch with um, you know, Emily Nishi, who at the time was head of um, really you know, diversity ERGs at, at Google. And so you know, Emily said, oh, why don't you start one? And I thought it was a great idea because um, you know, I, I felt for myself, it was a great need just to have a community of, of like-minded Asian American professionals so we can help each other, mentor each other, help each other grow in our careers. And that was the birth of the Asian Google network? Yeah, that was. You're the founder. Yes, yes I am. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, I'm part of that chapter in, in Toronto and um, you know, it was my first time really getting involved in that ERG. When I was in New York, I wasn't um, overly involved even though there is a big presence. And what I've, I've realized just through my own discovery process is there are nuances of you know, Asian American, Asian Canadian experience. And I do think a lot of it, as you kind of teased earlier, is rooted in the cultural values, right? The Confucius uh, values and little things like respecting your elders and how does that actually manifest in the workplace would um, makes it quite hard, I think, for those who really hold true to those values to have a dissenting voice or dissenting opinion over somebody who might be more senior than you. Mm -hmm. um, so first off, thank you for, for starting that because it has really blossomed into something really big and meaningful at Google. Um, and I guess the second, second question from that is, have there been kind of key skills or attributes that you think Asians in particular need to um, work on or over-index on to do well in their career, at least in a professional setting? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually thought about this a little bit. I mean, I think, um, you know, I don't want to like completely generalize and, and stereotype all Asians and say, you know, every Asian needs to work on this. So yeah. I think that, you know, as a, as a career coach and I was at Google, 
you know, we, we want folks to uh, you know, leverage everybody's strengths. And there's a book called Strength Finders, right? You find your own strength, you, you leverage that, right? But at Google, as you know, like one of the things we, we uh, you know, evaluate uh, employees on is this thing called executive presence. And that has like, a lot of different, you know, sub uh, categories. So one is just public speaking, right? So I think that uh, the, most of the business world, you know, if you don't have that executive presence, if you can't speak properly with, uh, you know, if you have an accent, right? If you are very timid, low voice, right? You, or, or your body posture, body language just doesn't come across as having a strong executive presence. Those are things that you could probably work with, work at, you know, by, uh, you know, going to more training, doing more practice, uh, joining, you know, Toastmasters and, and, and so on. So I think executive presence and public speaking is definitely one skill that everybody, not just Asians, but everybody needs to have to help them, ex uh, you know, exceed in their career. I think another thing is uh, going back to the Confucian, you know, upbringing. So a plus side is the respect for authority and, uh, and kind of just, you know, kind of uh, hard work and, and all that stuff. But the I would say the business world uh, sometimes you need to make a little bit, a, a little bit or a lot of noise. You need to um, be seen and heard, and it's hard to draw that balance between being obnoxiously self-promoting versus you know standing up for your point of view and making sure that people don't take credit for your point of view, right? And I, that's definitely happened to me in the past, and and we're like you know I. I I had an idea and I kind of said it, maybe I didn't say it as well. And then somebody else had basically the same idea in the meeting and I was thinking to myself afterwards, like, well, when they said it, everybody kind of then thought that they had the idea where actually mm -hmm. I had the idea, you know, maybe it's independent of that person. But so I think that being able to stand up for your, your, yourself and, and uh, sharing your, your ideas and collaborate effectively with people, those are all really important skills mm -hmm. for Asians and, and non-Asians to have. And speaking of specifically, was that something you practice over many years, or once you kind of had that like light bulb moment, did you just start doing it? So I think uh, you know after college, I I joined uh, Accenture, and I think they yeah. did a good job with uh, really training and developing the, their folks. And yeah. so we had a lot of uh, you know experience uh, going to formal courses and the, the headquarters at St. Charles. You know that's the training headquarters. So we actually I had like like literally you know, uh, giving presentation skills, right? Or how to develop um, like uh, your, your pitch or, or things of that nature and get a chance to practice it. And when you're managing a team of people and you're, you know, you're um, talking to partners, so you're given an opportunity at, you know, a relatively early age to actually um, practice some of these things. And so I'm one of those one people that whenever I attend training, I always keep the training materials. So I, I've had that, uh, you know, original set of um, printouts on, how to give an effective presentation from Accenture. And then over the course of my career, I've actually then created training on how to give effective presentations and delivered it to my colleagues. So I think, I think that, um, yeah, it's like one of the things I'm, I'm very aware of is the importance of how to uh, you know, give strong presentations. Mm. Great. And I, I guess kind of um, touching on the point that you made about being at Accenture, um, another question or topic I'd love to touch on is this risk-taking. Right. Because um, I do think, you know, um, it is much more common in the Asian culture to um, be risk averse, at least within one's career and with financial decisions. How did you make and think about making decisions from or of leaving uh, large and relatively safe companies like Accenture or Google to do something else? Um, how did you think through that? What was the thought process like? 
Yeah, great question. So I think for the Accenture, I was there for six years, and uh, I think it's uh, you know I, I always kind of have all these ideas floating in my head of of different like um, startup ideas. So like, like, wouldn't it be great if we if the world could do this? And so so I left Accenture to go back for my MBA at UCLA because I wanted to switch really from the pure consulting track into a more entrepreneurial startup track. And I think that's what an MBA is, is great for. It like really helps you. You can, you, can, you can pretty much enter with any career industry and pivot to any other career industry. If you start laying the, the groundwork during those two years, they're there. Like it's taking the, the, the right set of courses, joining the right set of clubs, uh, right set of um, you know, extracurricular activities like volunteer you know, or, or internships. So you can make a pivot any, anywhere. So yeah, so that's what I did. So that I could, you know, and, and, and UCLA uh, Anderson has like a great program on entrepreneurship. So, um, you know, I was matched with uh, like very seasoned entrepreneurs who kind of gave a lot of coaching and guidance and really encouraged like uh, my, my colleagues, you know, with this uh, program called Tech on Campus. And so our advisor, Bruce Wallen, really, uh, you know, went out of his way to encourage us to, to think entrepreneurially and, and to take the risk to become an entrepreneur. So I owe a lot of that. Um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, desire and, uh, and, and um, yeah, to kind of plunge in uh, from Bruce's uh, mentoring over the years. Mm. And after your MBA, is that when you started your own company, Leisure Planner? Yes. So that's it's like this idea for, for yeah. a B2C startup. Basically, we help organize um, people's leisure activities. Not just you, but your friends could together, you know, we could uh, suggest different things. So in some ways, I mean, you know, now like the technology and it's so much easier to do a startup. Back then, it was a lot harder, and our, uh, frankly, our algorithms wasn't very good. But um, but like, again, it was like this idea of you know, I am ready to leave the comforts of a corporate job to kind of take a plunge and like literally, you know, uh, yeah, do the startup. So yeah. Were you afraid? Were you afraid at all or not really? Were you more in for the adventure and like the learning and following your curiosity? So I think it's definitely, you know, I was ready for the adventure, but, but honestly, yeah. this is where, you know, I kind of bring in my, my faith as well. I mean, I, I did a lot of praying yeah. and I believe like, you know, God will open doors and God will close doors. And so sometimes mm -hmm. it's like, you know, just keep praying. And then, and then if, if you feel like God is leading you in a certain way, then you kind of just follow that path. So, so I was, uh, you know, during that time, you know, I prayed a lot and, and thought a lot, talked to a lot of, you know, people and yeah, and, and felt fine, comfortable, you know, pursuing mm. the, the entrepreneurial life. And that was pretty much in the midst of the dot-com boom. Is that right? Like in early 2000s? Yeah. So it kind of caught the tail end. So that's why, yeah. you know, we didn't last, you know, we lasted about a year, but, uh, but like, yeah, so I think it was, you know, um, it was by that, by like, you know, when I graduated, things had really started to slow down, but Still, though, it was kind of like that's, but like definitely when I was thinking about business school, that's when it was the, the boom was on. So that's mm -hmm. when, you know, really what a lot of people I think also left very comfortable jobs also to, to uh, yeah. go for the MBA. And then after the experience kind of running and growing your own company, what were kind of your main takeaways from that in terms of what you wanted to do in, in your work and career? Yeah. So, so I think I always gravitated toward um, big ideas, things that I think can really help shape society in a very positive way. Yeah. And, but then uh, what I learned the hard way is really you know, execution. It's not about the idea. A lot of people have really great ideas. It's about the execution. And it's about um, you know, being willing to hire the right people and really give them enough authority and delegate things and, uh, and so on so that you could really um, 
Yeah, because like we need to pivot all the time on our ideas. And so for for a founder, if you're so wedded to your original idea and you don't necessarily hire or find the right set of uh, partners to help you make the pivot, then then you might not end up being successful. Right. So I don't know whether, you know, I mean, the, the our, our, our revenue model on advertising kind of uh, made it hard. But but even then, like so arguably, like if, if I found the right um partners maybe we would have pivoted the business in some way and that would have led to survive but uh at the end of the day i mean i learned a lot of valuable lessons which is about really the importance of execution um you know at a startup mm -hmm. and kind of um off the idea of big ideas um two of your 12 years at google were within google x right in in apac and you're essentially the chief innovation officer for the region what was that experience like what was it like um working on these big audacious ideas uh, within uh, a large company like Google? Yeah, I think uh, it, was a, it was really uh, amazing. I mean, I, I have to say like those are my, the two of my favorite years of my 12 years at Google. Um, I, you know, when I was leading teams in the various ad parts of the businesses, uh, you know, we were generating solid revenue, uh, leading a large team of people, but it was pretty much like, you know, um, you know, I mean, Google is a, just a phenomenal company that generates lots and lots of revenue. So, so just me as a, a team, a person leading a team generating revenue, it's not that special. But Google X was a special place because um, Larry and Sergey, to their credit, really had a vision for leveraging technology to solve the world's big problems. And so, um, you know, we worked on these things called moonshots, where we're trying to, you know, have a 10x effect on a world problem, not just like make it 10% to you know, 20% incremental improvement. So, so we typically, like a lot of our uh, technologies were focused on the energy sector, how to provide energy, or it could be in the uh, realm of telecommunications, how to provide um, high-speed internet access to people around the world who can't afford it or don't have access to it. So, so I worked on a lot of these product, products like the you know, Makani, which is a wind turbine that like it flies at a kite generates electricity cheaply and, and, and cleanly, as well as Project Loon, which are these balloons that fly overhead and provide you know, um, uh, 3G access, right? So it could be like to, um, to, uh, you know, to the um, uh, rainforest, or it could be to you know, over the different uh, remote parts of the world. So I probably talked to um, C-level executives in, in various industries, as well as the government ministers, and it was just kind of like, I was kind of like an evangelist, pitching them this vision, that we, this grand vision that we had about the various um, project, uh, Google X technologies, getting them excited and getting them interested in working on a pilot with us and all that stuff. So, so it, was a, it was a great you know, two years. I really enjoyed um, you know, every minute of that experience. And then in 2019, you decided to leave the big G after 12 years. Um, how is how easy or difficult was that decision for you? Because um, you know you obviously spent a lot of your career at Google. It's such a great place to work. Um, it was supportive of some of your moves uh, geographically uh, to and from Asia. Um, what was the thought process like when you decided on that? And what did you do after leaving Google? Yeah, great question. So it's definitely hard. It's definitely a hard decision. And you know, every now and then, yeah, I definitely feel like, oh, you know, maybe I should have stayed. But um, I think, I think in general, I, I think it's a good decision. I think uh, a few, for a few different reasons. One is, um, you know, just as I was so passionate about Google X and the idea of working on moonshots, right? These are paradigm shifts in the world. I 
started to get interested in, in cryptocurrency and blockchain. And then I started to realize, wow, this is kind of one of those game-changing um, technologies. So just as internet was one or the mobile you know, smartphone was another one, right? I think uh, blockchain and blockchain for sure, cryptocurrency you know, also, but definitely blockchain is one of those you know, technologies that will um, reinvent other industries. And yeah, I firmly believe that. So I started to dabble and invest in some of my cryptocurrencies, started doing mining on some. And so at some point I thought, okay, if I was going to leave, I would, um, I would switch into um, you know, the, the, the blockchain cryptocurrency space. Um, and, and also in terms of just the, the role, I mean, I think it's uh, prior to right, the role, right before Google, I was VP at a B2B e-commerce startup reporting to the COO. And I always, you know, her name was Tracy. And I also admired Tracy for how she kind of had to juggle so many different things and, and kind of like uh, make decisions. And, uh, and I kind of thought, okay, someday, you know, like uh, after Google, my next role would be like a chief operating officer or chief business officer kind of role at a startup. So I think that, so the timing was right for me. And also, I, I, I mean, honestly, Google's a great place, but after 12 years, you know, um, yeah, I thought it was time for a change. I mean, when I was a career coach, one of the, I don't know who, which framework, who gave me this framework, but uh, somebody I think told me once, like, you should always take every six months, take stock of where you are in your career and ask yourself these three questions. You know, am I being challenged? Am I learning in my job? And uh, am I having fun, right? If the answer to any of these questions really is a no, you have to really ask yourself why and can I change it so that it becomes a yes. And if you really can't change it, then it might be better to just look for a different role, right? And so I think um, actually one of the ex-Google uh, colleagues, uh, Jenny Blake, she wrote this excellent book called Pivot. And the Pivot book really, if you, there's a bunch of frameworks, right? It would help you more systematically think about how do you pivot to something that you're passionate about, right? So I think I went right. through some of those exercises and I realized, yeah, you know what? I, I definitely wanted to one, work in the blockchain cryptocurrency industry as well as you know, go back to a more of an entrepreneurial company where I had a lot more ownership over the, the strategy and execution and help the company to really grow and scale. Yeah, great. Um, and totally um, recommend the Jenny Blake book as well, Pivot. And one of the things I loved about that, I, that book was just this concept of kind of de-risking um, your career decisions. Um, so were you already involved in um, investing, whether it's your time or money in crypto and blockchain while you were at Google to just like figure out, is this actually the thing that I, I want to do? Like to, what, what degree did you experiment and kind of explore while you had your, your quote unquote safer day job at uh, Google? Yeah. So I definitely remember, you know, talking to some of my colleagues in my, in my, the group in New York, where there's some of the folks in the technical account management team, they were even ahead of me, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, in terms of investing in all these different coins. So every now, every now and then, you know, when we got to a, a certain uh, meeting earlier, we would chat about, you know, which coins, uh, which cryptocurrencies or yeah. altcoins to invest in, right? So, um, yeah, so I think that, you know, I, I started to, to really dabble at that point. Um, but that was more on the, you know, the cryptocurrency side of the business. Yeah. But then I started to really do research on the blockchain side of the business, right? And I feel yeah. like that's where, you know, even cryptocurrencies, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a hit and miss, you, you know, to, when you're investing all these different altcoins, you really don't know which one will take off. Yeah. But the blockchain underlying technology and how it's distributed, how it's open, how it's secure, I think will result in significant changes to how the way business is done. Yeah. So yeah, so that's what you know, led me, you know, excited me about, about that whole industry. So for those who don't know the blockchain, how would you um, kind of describe it 
Yeah. So think of it away as like an open um, database that, it, I mean, actually a lot of different technologies have blockchain. It's not just one monolithic technology, but, yeah. but basically the, the summary of it is that there are different blocks that gets written that get added to each other. And so once a block is written, the next block gets added to the end of it, like a train, right? You have different trains and you get another at the end, at the end yeah. and another one at the end. And all the previous ones are set pretty much. You, it's immutable. So as a result, you could uh, track certain things, like for example, using a blockchain so solution, you could securely track the, the supply chain of a product, right? Prevent counterfeiting, right? Yeah. And the fact is that uh, all these different participants around the world could actually see the chain results in this openness that mm -hmm. um, you know, companies are, are trying to you know, develop all kinds of solution around this so that it's like an open platform. So um, yeah, and it's also, it could be done very fast. So you know, certain, uh, coins take a longer time for the, each block to be generated, but some could be optimized for speed, um, you know, uh, and so blocks will be issued, you know, like very, very fast. So this, so blockchain, there's a lot of uh, variation in how uh, companies implement various blockchain solutions. But I think in general, this whole class of um, technology could really reinvent lots of different industries in, in the world. Mm. And can you talk a little bit more about Epiphany's product and um, the problem it's trying to solve? Yeah, so yeah, happy to. So, you know, I'm really excited about Epiphany because like, like I said, I'm excited about the fact that we're trying to change the world in some fundamental ways. Um, you know, we really provide a global liquidity and financial value transfer network. And, uh, and so what does that mean? So, so certainly today, right? Like let's say when you buy shares of stock, um, it's actually not physically, you know, long time ago, you might have been trading physical shares of stock and, and so on. But now there's a company called DTCC, which is basically settling these, these trades with the brokers. And then your, um, your issues of stock are being transferred uh, kind of on a ledger to another person, right? We're trying to replicate that exact same similar model to the world of uh, fiat currencies as well as digital asset currencies. So that in the future, like sort of today, like if you want to send money you know, to another country, it takes you a, like two to three days and it also uh, costs you, you know, you know, forty dollars or whatever to wire the funds, right? But imagine a world where um, you can send that fund in a second, right? So that's why we're you know, we have this new product line called Roxy, which is a global instant settlement network. Where imagine you can send your U.S. dollars to uh, Indonesia or to Philippines or Mexico, and it takes like a second to do, and it costs a fraction of the cost, right? So that's what our network is trying to achieve. Um, and that's one product line. The other product lines are trying to tie together the global digital market, digital asset uh, exchanges with institutional investors that want to trade. So, so that way, uh, investors don't have to open accounts at all the different exchanges. They just open one account with Epiphany and we connect to the global uh, liquidity pool of, of, uh, of, of trades. So yeah, that's what a company does in a nutshell. Um, at Epiphany, I am the chief business officer. So I lead three, three of our teams. I lead the sales and business development team. I lead the marketing and PR team, and I lead our customer success and account ma management teams. And definitely, we're growing uh, by leaps and bounds. And I actually have open headcount in each of my departments. So anybody who's looking for a job, definitely, uh, you know, send me your resume. Do they need to be based in New York, or or is Epiphany now open to uh, remote working? Yeah. So so we're headquartered in San Francisco. Uh, we have offices all over the world. I would say that. Uh, in the U.S., we actually are open now. I think with COVID, 
we've been sheltering from home and you know, leveraging Zoom and Google Meet very effectively. So at this point, we're very comfortable having you know, just meetings uh, all the time using Zoom and, and Google Meet. So you know, I am uh, comfortable with candidates from different parts of the US. So yeah, I actually even, even Canada too. So Great. How yeah. should people reach out to you if they're interested to learn more? Uh, I think LinkedIn is probably the best way. So yeah, anybody who you know, sends them a message saying you heard about this podcast, I'm happy to link with you and, and, and so on. So great. Yeah. Yep. I'll include your LinkedIn profile in the uh, show notes after. Okay. Um, so just a couple more questions. And one is more about breadth versus depth when it comes to career. And I think the thing I love about your career is you have, in a lot of ways, it seems like you followed your curiosity, you know, worked a lot in e-commerce, worked in media, now you're working uh, in blockchain. What What's your advice for people who are worried that they might just be a generalist and might not be able to later in their career um, move up if they don't just focus on one thing? That is a really good question that honestly, I've also struggled with as well. Um, you know, there's something to be said about just being in one industry and being able to really focus on that and, and to grow your career that way. If yeah. that is like earlier on, you realize that that's your passion, right? So arguably, like if I had stayed at Accenture, uh, I could have, you know, gone all the way up, you know, become a partner and all the other stuff, right? Or even like, you know, some of my earlier other or other, other roles, right? So, I, but I do think one key skill to have, regardless of what, which industry or whatever is, you have to learn uh, to be able to adapt very quickly to change. Because change will happen either in your industry, there'll be a lot of disruptions. It could be something like a COVID. It could be something like a competitor's technology. All of a sudden, like, you know, all the people who are working on, you know, uh, Windows uh, CE or devices or that industry, or, or even yeah. like, uh, like uh, you know, um, um, BlackBerry, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, you know, the duopoly of, of uh, iOS and and Android came in and, and really reinvented that whole industry. So I think the ability to adapt to change is super important. And and for people who are very focused on one industry, one career path, after a while, it might be harder to adapt to change because you're so entrenched in what you're doing. It might be hard. Uh, you know, after if you've been at the same company for 12 years, it might be a challenge to switch careers, right? So I would say, yeah. So I would say, um, it's not a. There's not an easy answer for everybody, but it's you have to really look at it. Is if if you can still answer those three questions, you know, am I being challenged? Am I learning? Am I having fun? And you're able to do that in the same company, same industry, then that's great. That's a good choice for you. But if you kind of feel like I'm kind of bored, um, I I kind of see a way for me to leverage my skills and passion in a different adjacent industry, maybe that's better for you because now you're on a, a new learning curve for, for yourself. Mm, that's great advice. Um, and I guess the last question is, what advice would you give to your younger self? So let's say this is Josh just graduating from university or you know some a, a recent grad. What advice would you give them in terms of uh, finding a fulfilling and interesting career? Yeah, that's also a really good question as well. So um, and I actually thought, I probably would have told myself uh, you know, to join Google even earlier. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, no, but uh, uh, kidding aside, um, you know, I think in my right after college, you know, that's when I was you know, making money. I, I spent a lot of money in those early years. So, so one advice I would have given myself is just to save more, buy a, you know, a, a studio or um, an apartment, and that way, like, start the, the path to home ownership earlier. Yeah. Then I would say is... Uh, I mean, in those days, again, you know, I was heavily involved in Asian American activities, which is fine. 
but it was a lot of just like, I also networking widely, which is fine, but there's a difference, you know, I, I, um, you know, hopefully people understand the difference between a mentor, a coach and a sponsor. Okay. A, uh, a, um, a coach is like literally somebody who is trained on coaching and, and, you know, they know how to ask good questions and help direct you. Right. A mentor is somebody who kind of, you know, you meet with on a, you know, periodic basis, like give you some, um, some suggestions and tips, but a sponsor is somebody typically more senior company who really takes um, you after under his or her wings and really helps to groom you for success. And I wish I had known the difference between a mentor, a coach and a sponsor and spent a lot more time finding a good sponsor mm -hmm. instead of just like having lots of different mentors and, and other coaches and, and, and so on. Yeah. Great, great really How do you find a sponsor? Because I feel like a lot of folks know I need a sponsor, but it's almost like any relationship, it's gotta be a two-way thing. So any advice on how to find that match in a more efficient way, or is it really just continuing to be open, put yourself out there and hopefully find um, somebody who's, who's very uh, enthusiastic to help you? Yeah, like I, I think I, I, you hit it on the head. I mean, I think it, it is challenging and I think it requires, um, I mean, you, you, most likely they're mentors that you, when you meet with, um, you follow through on the suggestions that they give you, right? And then as, as the mentors be, you know, rise up and become more successful, then uh, at some point they could kind of convert from really being just a more casual mentor to an active sponsor, right? Mm -hmm. And the other point that I think is, is actually being proactive and asking for, for that. Like, so, I mean, I think it's because they're also taking um, a risk on uh, kind of using some yeah. of their own relationships to kind of help uh, promote you within the company. Yeah. So you have to kind of demonstrate, you know, the actual results and you have to really ask them, you know, would they, um, and you know, be willing to not just be a mentor, but, but, but to be a sponsor as well. And uh, it has to be also, like you said, a two-way relationship where you have to give them value, which is um, give them more about the feedback from your peers generation on uh, what everybody's concerned about, what they're thinking, the latest trends. Uh, for example, like some of the, the sponsor level executives may be you know, quite a bit senior. And so maybe they're not up to speed on the latest thing in blockchain technology. So you as a younger person is able to bring in, you know, or even like, you know, or social media, uh, new apps or new trends, right? So, so, so you basically are also helping ed educate them on trends, but it's about asking, it's about asking, it's about, you know, having that uh, regular relationship with them and, and so on. But it's, this definitely not an, uh, a science, it's definitely an art. It's definitely a, just have to keep trying to find a, a good sponsor. Yeah, but great advice just to number one, be aware of it, and number two, to continue seeking for that because um, when you find it, it is, it is quite special. Um, thank you so much, Josh. We're at time. Uh, really appreciate all your insights and just joining us, sharing your advice, uh, walking us through your uh, super amazing and, and impressive career, um, and looking forward to see what you and the team do at Ap Ap Apony, Epiphany. Pardon me. No and for anybody who's interested, I guess they can follow you on LinkedIn. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Okay. Thank you so Great. much, Justin. I really enjoyed the opportunity to, to, to catch up. Likewise. Good to catch up. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. 
Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.